Rinkwide Vancouver. Free game, post game, every game presented by Bodog from Sports Odds. Free casino games make a play at Bodog.net. Wadden and Jay Pat here with you with the official first day of the NHL offseason. Everybody is now in offseason mode around the NHL, Jay Pat. Uh, we got a very special episode here today as well. We're going to talk to uh, Scott Rintoul, of course. Uh, about his Unreal West Coast Express series that he's done uh, with us, our partners at GoGoat Sports as well. But uh, let's let's just dive into this offseason talk for just a, a moment now that the uh, Vegas Golden Knights and Florida Panthers are officially in offseason mode. After watching that game last night, and we'll break it down a little bit later on here in the pod, it just got me thinking, like, I'm looking at this Vegas team and the Canucks seem miles away from being what this Golden Knights team. It, it's almost like, J-Pat, they're in different leagues, the way that Vegas is constructed and how deep they are throughout. It got me thinking as well, and I'll ask you this, who's the best player on the Vegas Golden Knights? Right. I mean, that's a it's a great question. And I think if you went out on the street, you'd probably ask 10 people. You get eight different answers, uh, which, again, just brings it back to the true definition of a team. And... Uh, you know, unfortunately for the Canucks, they do play in the same league. They play in the same division, but I hear what you're saying. And that's just the stark reality of it. And this isn't, oh, Vancouver guys harping on the Canucks. Again, the Golden Knights, uh, without a doubt, were the better team in that series. Were they the best team in the National Hockey League this year? Not by point total, but the regular season is all about just staging to get to the games that matter. And so we saw that Boston doing what it did. Ultimately, that didn't matter either. Golden Knights did what they had to do to finish on top, get home ice advantage. We know that home ice is an advantage for them. And as the Bruins fell away and other teams fell away, the Golden Knights had home ice right through the playoffs. And, you know, a lot of talk about uh, the Florida Panthers, the upstarts that they were, and an incredible story. Like the upset of the Bruins, we're going to be talking about that for ages. And then to knock off Toronto and Carolina as well, like Good on them. But ultimately, 11 of the 15 series that were contested in these Stanley Cup playoffs were won by the higher seed. So you don't bank on being the eighth seed and getting on this incredible run. The Los Angeles Kings did it a decade ago. The Florida Panthers got through three stages. So there were four upsets in these playoffs, and three of them belonged to Florida. The other was Seattle knocking off Colorado, and that was an incredible accomplishment for the second-year Kraken as well. But the point remains you're trying to build the best team possible and put it up against anybody else. And you want to believe that your best team is going to be good enough to win. You're not building a team that's going to sneak into the playoffs and then get on this hot streak. Like that's, that's just not the way to do it. So yeah, I mean, when I look at the Golden Knights, you know, Jack Eichel is probably their best. Eh, I mean, I say that, and even as I start to get <laughs> the words come out of my mouth, and then I'm looking at Mark Stone with the hat trick last night. I mean, Stone, yeah, like Mark Stone was, you know, bad back aside. I mean, that guy looked like he was creating a lab to be, you know, a two-way absolute ace, and he is. And, you know, I think a three-time Selkie finalist, um, you know, who's got the offensive chops when the chips are down. I mean, he scored that goal, I think it was the opener of this series as well. I remember it was reviewed for the high stick, but the hand-eye to knock the puck down and then kind of all in one motion just to rip it. Um, I mean, that guy's got a ton of skill, but he also just the wherewithal, the positioning, always on the right side of the puck, plays the game the right way. Um, Yeah, so, you know, what I like the most, I guess, about Vegas, and look, this may not resonate with a Canucks audience, but... Like, so many teams in the NHL fall in love with their players. And and Vegas was just, like, so ruthless that, I mean, Marc-Andre Fleury became the face of that franchise. Screw it. They needed cap space. See a flower, you're gone. Yeah, I mean, Max Pacioretty, they brought him in. He had a 32-goal season. He followed it up. He had 24 in 48. Uh, the following year, needed cap space. Gave him away, essentially. Parted with a piece to move him along. Um... You know, they had Alex Tuck, who was emerging as a real star in this league. But so what? They saw a chance to use Alex Tuck to get Jack Eichel, the you know number one center. They, you know, they got knocked off by that Montreal team a couple of years ago, and it was because they they weren't good enough down the middle. And so they went out and they addressed that. They had Nate Schmidt. Everybody loves Nate Schmidt, but they saw Nate Schmidt sort of standing in the way 
of getting Alex Petrangelo. So they had to move off Nate Schmidt for pennies on the dollar. They peddled a, a first-round pick that they got 15th overall in Eric Brandstrom. A lot of people thought he was going to be a great young defenseman. Peddled him for Mark Stone. How did that work out? Yeah. Like they've taken swings. Right. And so, so many teams are so afraid of parting with first-round picks. Peyton Krebs. Yeah. Uh, Eric Brandstrom. Cody Glass, all that talk about Elias Pettersson or Cody Glass, which is it going to be? And the Canucks were damn lucky and glad that they got Pettersson, but Vegas didn't care that they ended up with Cody Glass. Move them along. Like, there's any up, and it goes beyond that. Like, three coaches, Gerard Glant, been a really good coach. But, you know, he had a little bit of a down cycle. No, time to move off him. Bring in Pete DeBoer. Again, a really good coach, but they had the opportunity to get the guy that they felt was the right guy for the job in Bruce Cassidy and you know, hard to argue when he's standing there hoisting the Stanley Cup over his head. So uh, there isn't a whole lot of loyalty. It's professional sports. It's a reminder that it's a business. That's the way that they have treated it. And they played the short game. Like losing all those first round picks. Yeah, I mean, somewhere down the line, that's going to come back to haunt them. It will. Like they will pay the piper. But guess what? They're Stanley Cup champs. And that's going to allow them Whenever the hard times fall, they'll look up, they'll see the banner, and they'll go, screw it. Like, got the big prize, and it was all worth it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, too many teams are too loyal to their guys. Too many teams, I think, overvalue uh, first-round picks. Certainly, you know, mid to late first-round picks. Whatever the case, the Golden Knights from day one, Bill Foley, their owner. uh, Gary Bettman said it last night. You know, aggressive, audacious, bold, brash. Yeah, I mean, who predicts the Stanley Cup in six years? And yeah, here they are six years later as Stanley Cup champions. And they said from day one that they were going to do things differently. It was Vegas, that they had to do things a little bit differently. And they have. And, you know, they won't bring back the same Stanley Cup champion team, much as Colorado couldn't keep its band entirely intact. But they're still going to be a really good team again next year. And as I said, they play in the Canucks division. So, um yeah, like it's just, that's where the bar is for the Vancouver Canucks. And, you know, we've been saying it for a while. It's going to be a big off season here on a lot of fronts for the Vancouver Canucks. But even if they had their best version of an off season, if all the chips fell the Canucks way, I still don't see how they measure up to whatever Vegas is going to put on the ice to begin its title defense in the fall. Yeah, with all due respect to uh, Ivan Barbashev, they don't really lose anybody of significance. Uh, this offseason do the uh, Vegas Golden Knights. They got a lot of guys locked up. Arbashev's an UFA. Yeah, probably expect him to go elsewhere. Guys like him tend to get paid after runs like this. But, I mean, just look at their salary cap structure. Yeah, you got Jack Eichel making $10 million, and sure, you got Mark Stone making 9.5, Alex Petrangelo making 8.8. But the rest of the guys are on value contracts. Shea Theodore's got two more years left at 5.2 million. You know, someone like uh, Chandler Stevenson, 2.75. 2.75. And Nicholas Waugh signed for $3 million for four more years. You know, William Carlson, 5.9 for the next four years. Like, their salary cap structure is so well put together. And, you know, we talk about this with the Canucks and how much of a mess their cap is. I mean, that's something that they're going to have to get together. When you talk about the peddling of the first-round picks, like, is that the way for the Canucks to sort of get this right? Is there a... You know, I don't want to say a model, but is there something to maybe learn from that? I mean, it's a dangerous game at times. Worked for the Vegas Golden Knights. But just with the absolute mess that the Canucks are in when it comes to their cap structure, like I know we talk about sweeteners. I'm not talking about the 11th overall being a sweetener, but maybe the 11th overall does get them. And I know we batted this around on a podcast a couple of days ago. Gets them a player that, you know, helps them now. And where they're at in their cycle, maybe that makes more sense for them to be able to get that player that helps now and not opposed to two to three years from now. Yeah, I mean, you just listed off, you know, those big salaries. And then you think, like, the value that they extract from those players, right? Like, they've got Petrangelo. What's Petrangelo making? 8-8. Eight, eight. Yeah. But, yeah, like, that that's a good price, right? It's a value He's for him, a for sure. stud, legit yeah. Number one, two times an eleven Stanley million Cup dollar winner player. now, yeah. and then yeah. you've got OEL making basically in the same ballpark, and you just yeah. think of the role that they play and the the space that they take up. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just like I look at Vegas and back to your question about their best player. I mean, I, I, I guess I would say Eichel, 
but you could make a strong case for Mark Stone. Whatever the case is, it's just the list is so long. Uh, I mean, Marcia so wins the con Smythe. We talked about Petrangelo. I thought Shea Theodore had a really good Stanley Cup final where I didn't think that he had played to that level earlier in the series or in the playoffs, but, I mean, it was always there and he was capable of that. You know, Aiden Hill, uh, that's going to be fascinating to see. Is there a team that, you know, sees Stanley Cup champion now uh, out there? We know that everybody's searching for the next great goaltender but even at that, like, they got him for a fourth-round pick last summer. Like, why didn't San Jose see the potential in Aiden Hill? San Jose struggled all season to find goaltending. And let's keep in mind, the only reason why they made that transaction was because they knew about Robin Leonard and that they yeah. were going to have to put Robin Leonard on LTIR. I, I looked that up the other day. That was a, an August signing yeah. for Aiden Hill, or trade, excuse me, for Aiden Hill. Like, they, they realized, oh, shit, like, we got to do something about our goaltending here because Robin Leonard is not going to be done for the season. They still got Leonard. Like, when he gets healthy, he's a $5 million goaltender for two more years for them. So what do they do with Robin Leonard? Well, they, I mean, I, I saw, I was a cap friendly, that like, their cap commitment was $96 million. Uh, it was the highest in the National Hockey League this year, but they used LTIR effectively. And look, I don't think it's the blueprint. I don't think teams are going to go, you know what? We're going to go with a five-headed goaltender monster next year and find out over the course of the season which guy we think is the guy. That's not the blueprint. It did work for Vegas. To me, the overarching message there is you build this incredible machine in front of the goaltender. If you get a capable guy, you should be able to plug him in. And I'm not trying to detract from Aiden Hill at all. I, I, I just wonder when I look at Aiden Hill and the way that he played when he took over... And he, like he, the guy's massive, like most NHL goaltenders are now. Like I just wonder why did it take this long for him to sort of emerge? He bounced around. He'd been in Arizona. He'd been in San Jose. You know, it, it's tough to get a net at the NHL level. I get that, but I mean, he gives. The, you know, I, I didn't see anything there that looked like flash in the pan to me. So that's why I say I think it's gonna be interesting to see. Well, he held the fort early in that game. Yeah, Again, no, we'll, but we'll I, get to that I, game but, a little bit later I, like, on. Yeah. If he goes, you know, if they move off him. Um, this year, like, is there a team out there and, and what's somebody willing to, to pay Aiden Hill? Do they think that he has now arrived in the National Hockey League? And maybe he has. Maybe he has. Does that make Thatcher Demko perhaps the best asset that the Canucks have? I think you can have that discussion without, you know, people are, you should be able to have that discussion without people, you know, mocking you or like freaking out. $5 million, three years remaining, you know, a value contract for a guy that can be a difference maker. But, you know, again, sometimes it's just a guy waiting in the wings needs an opportunity. So it's the question of bird in the hand. You know what you've got in Thatcher Demko when he's healthy and on his game. But this is where Vegas has seen opportunities to say, you know what? Yeah, we think we've got a pretty good goaltender, but we might be able to go and get a better goaltender. Rather than falling in love with the guys that you got, Vegas was always looking for ways to upgrade what they had. And they did that. And they did it with Petrangelo over Nate Schmidt. And they did it, you know, Eichel over whatever they had down the middle and bringing in Mark Stone. Like, again, just the big game hunting. And yeah, they had to pay for it. But in the end, the ends justify the means and the Vegas Golden Knights are Stanley Cup champs. And so it's almost impossible to argue with the way that they've gone about their business to this point. Are there any untouchables on this Vancouver Canucks roster, you think? Oh, yeah. Okay. I know that this question has been floated before. But after seeing Vegas and everything that you laid out that they've done. I don't see a world in which the Vancouver Canucks are trading Elias Pettersson. I mean, if you wanted to tear it down and burn it to the ground and create cap space and not so much the contract that he's got now, but the one that he's going to sign, um, you know, but I, like, I certainly don't see that happening. And we know that it's so damn hard to find guys that do what Quinn Hughes does. And the Canucks had been searching for 50 years before Quinn Hughes arrived. So, you know, I, I think those two are still untouchables, but... And I like Thatcher Demko. Like I, I do. I, just, I like the guy, the way that he plays when he's on, all that kind of stuff. But again, as we've seen, if you build the team correctly, I think you know you don't need an absolutely dominant goaltender. Now, Tampa would say, "Hey, Vasilevsky was uh, a massive part of you know their Stanley Cups," but they also had just a, a juggernaut in front of him. So hard to separate. And, and look at that blue line. Yeah, right? hard to separate yeah. the goaltender on the Tampa Lightning from the rest of the team. 
But yeah, I mean, for a team that's painted into this corner and doesn't have many trade chips, and if you want to keep the future of the hockey club and use that 11th overall pick and all those types of things, it's not beyond comprehension in my mind to think that Thatcher Demko could be a trade chip for the Vancouver Canucks. All right. So now, I mean, the offseason's begun for the Canucks for a while now, but now, like I said, every team is involved yeah. in it. You know, what do you expect here for the first moves uh, from Patrick Alvin? Is it is it the qualifying offers that uh, he needs to sort of sort out? Yeah, well, Dollywell's reporting that Ethan Barry is going to have shoulder surgery. So, okay. you know, that had kind of been floating out there, but it sounds now like that's the, the road that they're going to travel. So uh, they got to figure out a future for Ethan Bear. And do you commit to him? Does he just take his qualifying offer because uh, he won't have any leverage? And you certainly don't want to lock him in long-term, I don't think, with uh, a guy that's going under the knife for his shoulder. Um so I want to see, I assume qualifying offers will be made. Uh, you know, will there be any surprises? I don't think that there's going to be anybody that surprises us with the Canucks. Um, and Travis not, Dermott, though? Do you expect him to? I'm not. I, 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 and I don't have intel here. That's just my gut saying that, you know, I think they, you know, found other guys that they, at late in the season with Akito Hirose and Cole McCord and those kind of guys. Like, I think they can kind of give you what Travis Dermott can. But... The Ethan Bear thing, and we went over this last week when, you know, the idea of surgery was floated. You know, if Luke Shen isn't available, all of a sudden there's now this gap between Philip Peronick and Tyler Myers to whoever else you think is going to be an everyday right side guy for the Vancouver Canucks. And is that opportunity knocking for Jet Wu? Um, you know, is Cole McWard ready to play in the National Hockey League on a full-time basis? Whatever little money they've got, are they going to have to spend some of it on a, you know, a right side guy? Now, remember, Ethan Bear won't be out the entire season, we don't think, although ask Tanner Pearson how uh, surgeries go sometimes. But let's hope for the best for, for Ethan Bear here. So, you know, you, you have to keep that in mind as well, that if you're going to fill that hole, it's kind of as a stopgap. And that probably changes the mechanism that uh, the Canucks are going to, you know, use as well. Uh, the other thing to me is... Like, it seems so damn quiet around the Vancouver Canucks right now and has for a while. But we know that that's how Patrick Alvin likes to operate, right? Like, you look at the signposts in his time as general manager. The Brock Besser deal went down on a long weekend and kind of came out of nowhere. JT Miller resigning caught the world off guard on Labor Day last week or last year. You know, the Bohorvat trade... I was on a golf course in Palm Springs. I'd certainly let my guard down. Didn't think that it was going to happen, you know, in All-Star Week a couple of days before Horvat was going to the All-Star game. But Alvin made that happen. And even the Philip Ronick one. Like, so there have been some sizable moves by the Vancouver Canucks that really haven't got the attention of the insiders. There haven't been a lot of breadcrumbs out there. And so I want to believe that this is more of the same, that even though it's really quiet on the surface, that... That's how Alvin likes to operate. And so he's got to be doing his due diligence here and making the phone calls and all those types of things. But, um, you know, we're just, we're not hearing an awful lot about the Vancouver Canucks. But yeah, I mean, we are two weeks from the draft today. So it's on. They're all on the clock. The season is over. The next games that'll be played will be in the in the preseason. It, uh, you know, this, as you said, the official start of the offseason now, they're all in the starting gate here. And I saw a bet MGM I know Bodogs are guys, but I saw that MGM had the Canucks listed as 50 to 1 uh, long shots to win the Stanley Cup next year. So uh, they were there were 17 teams ahead of them with better odds. Um, so I think that qualifies Canucks are, uh, you know, that's a, a, at least one of the Vegas odds makers has the Canucks in the bottom half of the National Hockey League uh, to win the Stanley Cup next year. Bodogs got them at 55 to 1. Yeah, so. They have the, what is that, six, seven, eight, nine. There's Wadden counting again. Nine <laughs> worth odds, worst odds, that is, uh, in the NHL. 5,500 there. The outright leader right now, Colorado at plus 850. And if you believe in the Vegas Golden Knights, and as I look at the salary cap here and how many guys they're not going to lose, at plus 1,100, hmm. that might be worth more than a sprinkle right there. Head over to Bodog, though, to make that bet. Uh, before we talk to uh, Scott Rintoul, who's going to tell us about uh, the Unreal West Coast Express uh, series that he's got with Go Goat Sports, I, I just want to say, um, you know, to our colleagues out at TSN 1260 in Edmonton, out of those affected at TSN 1200 in Ottawa, we feel your pain. We've been there before. 
Uh, it's a tough day in our industry. It's been a tough couple of years uh, in our industry. I hope to see uh, everybody that lost their jobs today find themselves uh, back in the industry, get themselves back on their feet. But uh, again, just it's a tough day in our industry. We've been through it. It sucks. It does. And uh, like I said, hopefully uh, everyone that uh, is out of the job can find themselves back on their feet. Not an easy day, though, J-Pat. No, and I've been on uh, most of the shows on that Edmonton station and good guys and have gotten to meet them over the years when I was traveling around uh, the National Hockey League. So certainly uh, colleagues and yeah, I mean, it's home because uh, we went through it and it sounds like it went down in Edmonton exactly like it did here in Vancouver. So, you know, somewhere there are executives that are high-fiving that they thought the Vancouver model of pulling the plug on 1040 was, uh, yeah, that was a success. Let's do it again in Edmonton. And yeah, I mean, these are human beings. These are people that were doing jobs that they loved and they're not going to get that opportunity there now as uh, hopefully we have shown and others that uh, there can be life after terrestrial radio. Uh, but still, it's just, uh, you know, it's a company that just continues to slice and slice and slice. And this one uh, sounds significantly deep. Uh, some deep cuts on the television side at the national TV news uh, level as well. So, um, yeah, you know, who knows uh, where this industry is going? It's been a wild ride and, you know, we'll, we'll buckle in here and hope that uh, we can keep doing what we love to do. And that's talking about the Canucks on a regular basis here but uh, absolutely we do it today thinking about uh, colleagues across the country yeah and you the listener everyone that supported uh, this podcast any of the podcasts that are under the go goat sports platform you guys are the reason we can continue to do this so we thank you very much the bc lions are back in the playoffs and hosting the calgary stampeders on saturday november 4th at bc place kickoff at 3 30 p.m looking forward to this one playoff football bc place the Lions and that offense with Vernon Adams at the controls and all of those weapons he has in his receiving core. And you just think about the atmosphere in that building with the fans behind them. The Dome will be rocking. Should be a ton of fun. Tickets on sale now at bclions.com. And check this out. They start at just 30 bucks, and kids 17 and under can get in for 15 So bring the noise. Fill the Dome. Applewood Auto Group is celebrating 25 years of business, making the car business and our communities better. Applewood offers the best in-class experience whether you're looking for a car, service, or to join our team. Come find out why it's all good at Applewood. Visit us online at applewood.ca today. All right, J-Pat, we got a very special guest today. We tease it off the top. It's Scott Rintoul joining us now. Of course, he's got the Unreal West Coast Express, a docuseries that has been put out courtesy of our friends at Go Goat Sports. Uh, Scotty, thanks for joining. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. Been looking forward to this conversation for a little while now as you've had the documentary series out for a bit. I think most of our listeners have heard it, but for those that haven't, uh, just fill them in. Let us know exactly what this is all about. Well, this is a telling of a pretty sensational era, and I would use that in a number of different ways in Canucks history and a hockey story that I think is far more appealing to just to just a Vancouver audience. But you're right. We're talking to a Vancouver audience right now, and it's that era where the Canucks went from arguably the lowest point in their franchise's history, and that's very debatable, and I'm sure there's some current fans who would argue right now is that I believe it was the late 90s myself with the number of fans who wouldn't even go to games that didn't even want anything to do with the team. And the the group that brought them back, led by Marcus Naslin, Todd Bertuzzi, and Brendan Morrison. And there's a lot of supporting characters in there. But this series takes you through where they were at almost the pinnacle. And everybody remembers that back in 94, that close. And within four years, as Ian McIntyre terms it, they were in complete and utter chaos. Within four years, it's hard to believe it got to that. And then this is the unlikely group. Let's be honest. The unlikely group, three players drafted by other teams, acquired by three different general managers that somehow wind up on the same line and drag this group forward and become one of the most entertaining products in the National Hockey League. Now, this story has been told before, but was there any reluctance from any of the characters involved to to want to sort of unpack it all over again? I would say no, but not every single person participated in the project. So I suppose, yes, there was some reluctance or people had different things going on in their lives. I've tried not to be judgmental about it. There were a couple of names. As you hear this series, you thought, well, maybe I would hear from a Dan Cloutier. I tried to get Mark Messier. I tried to get Mike Keenan. And on Mark Messier's front, I think I was very close, ultimately, 
it didn't work out. But when Wayne Gretzky lends his voice to it, you get a little bit of a boost there and certainly some voices from Canuck lore of the past. But by and large, most people want to talk about this, Andrew, because it was a really fun time in their career. Whether it's the three players involved, whether it's Mark Crawford, whether it's Brian Burke, Dave Nonis, most had a big smile on their face when I asked them because they really enjoyed that time in their hockey history. I was on the beat starting in 1999, so Messier's final season. So like, I was on the front line. I was there the night that McSorley whacked Brashear. I was there the night that Bertuzzi clobbered Steve Moore. And like for me, it was such a trip just to go back down memory lane. But, you know, you filled in some cracks. There were things I had forgotten about. There were things I didn't know. So, you know, even for a guy that was there and lived it, I, I, I was fascinated by it. And it was a terrific listen uh, I just wonder, you know, look, Scott, you've done a lot in this business. I've had lots of opportunities, different mediums. Did it turn out to be more work than you thought? Was it like, did it come together the way that you hoped it would? Because I mean, ultimately, and you've seen, I mean, the response and the reviews have all been terrific. I mean, there's been so much favorable response to it. But I just wonder sort of from uh, behind the scenes from the creator himself, um, you know, how big an undertaking was this? This was way more work than I thought it was going to be, <laughs> if I'm honest here, guys. And I think I've said that before. When I originally envisioned this, I was fairly new to the podcast space just as a listener, let alone a creator. And I thought this was three, four episodes. Hey, we'll talk about when this line got together and the few years they had, and then we'll wave goodbye. And the more I dug into the story, the more I realized that you had to take people back to where they were, show them how bad things got in order to understand the true impact that this group actually had on the market, an impact that I believe continues to this day with how fanatic the fans of the Vancouver Canucks are. It wasn't like that before, and Jeff, you would know that because of when you started covering the Canucks on the beat and growing up in this city, and as, as great as things got in 94, the media environment was far different. This is the group that changed everything and got more microphones in there and quite frankly, it's never relented since. So yeah, it was a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. The scope of the project changed dramatically from when I started to the end. I'm really proud of the product and the way it came out when all was said and done. But it's a dance while you're going through it. I'll be honest, I've never done long form l like this. And that was part of the appeal to me. But as you're trying to compose these episodes, and I say compose rather than write, because I feel like that's what it's like. When should I use play-by-play? -play? Whose voice is best to use here? Should I narrate through this? Do we need just an extra pause to let that sentiment land? And I've never put together music, but I kind of equate it to putting together a movie and a piece of music, combining that in one. That's what it felt like to me anyway, as I was going through it. So it was a massive challenge but I'm really proud of the way that things turned out. And I was really happy to hear that while not all of the parts were easy to listen to for the members involved, they were really happy with the way the story was told. They felt like it was told accurately. Yeah, I, I wonder about, like, just tell us a little bit about some of the response beyond the participants themselves. But, you know, as I learned over the years, hosting things like post-game, uh, you know, the reach of the Canucks and Canuck Nation uh, there are so many people that grew up in Vancouver and have moved abroad. Like, I have to imagine that, that you've heard from people from probably all corners of the of the planet after this thing. Yeah, so far it's been like that. And you're right, most are based in BC, but those are some of the heartwarming stories that come back. I would get emails or tweets or direct messages saying, hey, I just want you to know that this has reconnected my father and I in terms of sports. We grew up watching this era together. We haven't really talked about sports, but now we're both listening to the series and we're having a conversation after each episode, and it's really rekindled our passion in watching things together. Sometimes that spanned three generations from grandparents all the way down to grandchildren and, and the children in between. There was another one that comes to mind, Jeff, where a young woman said, what you might know is that I grew up during this era. What you might not know is that I've reconnected with friends who have moved around the planet because we were all watching together during this time, and now we're all listening together, and so now it's rekindled our ability to converse about something that we have in common. So those were the stories that really touched me and made me realize the impact that this group had on not just the fan base at the time, but where people are in their lives right now. Were there things that uh, you found out while making this a documentary series that you didn't know about this, about the West Coast Express? So much. And 
it's because some of those stories, like the one Tom Larshide tells, and I'm not going to go spoiler, but the one that he tells when Pat Quinn got fired, I had no idea about that story. And that's an emotional story that Tom Larshide tells in the second episode. There's details that come along the way that cause you to call different guests because you're like, I didn't know that. I guess I better call this person and get their side of it or at least get them to expand on it because that's a detail I really didn't know about until I did this interview. And that was sort of the chicken and egg game. You'd interview somebody and go, well, do I have to go back and interview somebody else now? Because they said something about a story that, you know, that person could shed a little more light on. I learned so much. Like, honestly, Andrew, we could spend an hour on the things that I learned. And part of the response to harken back to Jeff's question, part of the response has been that like you either brought back memories that I'd forgotten, or you brought out new information that I didn't know. I really thought I knew this story but I didn't know that, and it's really shaped my opinion differently. Messier is a really good example to me. Like, I'm very curious for everyone who listens to this series what they thought of Messier as a Canuck going in and what they think about him going out. Even though he doesn't get his say in this series, just hearing from different voices and shedding different light on that in a different perspective, it makes me wonder how their views have changed. Scotty, it was a nine-part series originally, and then you've recently released... The Roundtable. Was that always part of your plan? Or again, was this something that sort of uh, emerged as the whole project developed? Yeah, it emerged as the whole project developed. I was in touch with Brendan, Todd, and Marcus through the whole process. I felt it was only fair for them to listen to each episode before it went out. And just so everyone knows, it wasn't, hey, do you want to vet this? It was, I want you guys to hear this in case somebody calls you about it, in case you're booked for an interview, so that you know what is going out into the world. And none of them ever said, take this out, anything like that. They learned a lot during the telling of this story as well. So I felt like we should bring that conversation to the public if possible. We had originally hoped we could get all three of them in Vancouver and do a live taping of that at an event at, toward the end of the season. It didn't work with their schedules, but we wanted to do this so that people could see how they felt about it, if they learned anything, things that may have changed in their minds after listening to it. And there are some things that have, and I would encourage people to listen to that bonus episode, episode 10, just to hear Todd specifically says something in that episode that I think will surprise some Canucks fans. And Brendan Morrison has a pretty emotional take at one point during that episode as well. And I, I will throw this out there for those who are in and around Vancouver or who are massive fans. We have not completely closed the door on the possibility of doing a live event at some point in the future. We are hopeful. Nothing is booked as of yet, but based on the feedback I've received on this series so far, I think there's an appetite for people if they could be in a, in a room where these three were telling some stories and having a conversation and maybe taking a few questions from the public. Oh yeah, Q and A. I think people will be all over that. Uh, so, what's the plans that you talk about? You know, perhaps that event happening, but when's the next uh, Unreal? Are we going to see any more of these? It's a great question and one that I'm pondering right now, Andrew. And and a lot of it has to do with what direction do I take the series? I had always thought the second season would be something other than hockey, but a couple of things have happened recently that have made me pause and say all right, maybe we could do something in the hockey world. So I'm going to see where those conversations go. But my my plan is at some point to do another season. I don't have it dialed in as to what that is yet. I've got ideas, but I haven't thrown my eggs in that basket yet saying, all right, this is what I'm committing to for season two, three, four, and beyond. Well, it, I, I, and I'm sure this has crossed your mind as well. I mean, it came out, it got rave reviews, but people live in a busy time and I would think that there is a segment of the population out there that probably thought, you know what, when the hockey season is done, when the Stanley Cup has been presented, I'm going to get to this. I would have to think that uh, West Coast Express is going to see sort of a rise here when people have a little more free time through the summer months. Yeah, that's my hope as well. You're going on those long road trips. You want something to listen to. You still want to connect with hockey, but it's that downtime after the draft is completed, after free agency hits initially, and you still want to get back in touch with the game. I'm with you on that. And I think for the greater hockey market, I think that's where it lands as well. So yeah, I'll be doing a little bit more of a push and knocking on a few more doors to see if we can get the word out because 
I'm with you. I think that the story is a very good one. It's a very compelling one and sheds a lot of light on things that people didn't know or would be very curious to find out. If, if the three guys involved at the center of it didn't know things, I would think that the average hockey consumer can learn a little bit from this as well. And, you know, for me as a listener of podcasts, this is the style of podcast I enjoy listening to. I like the daily stuff as well, and I like the current type of analysis that that you provide with your podcast, but I also like that deviation. Hey, something I can sink my teeth into for a little longer listen. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a perfect time of the year for that, as Jeff mentioned, with uh, uh, the NHL wrapping up uh, for another season. You can find it on your favorite podcast platforms. Also check it out at unrealsports.com and it's spelled U-N-R-E-E-L sports.com. West Coast Express. Scott, thanks for joining. Thank you very much. And Stanley Cup champion now, George McPhee involved with the project. So maybe he'll give it a little bump as well. The BC Lions are back in the playoffs and hosting the Calgary Stampeders on Saturday, November 4th at BC Place, kickoff at 3.30 p.m. Looking forward to this one, playoff football, BC Place, the Lions and that offense with Vernon Adams at the controls and all of those weapons he has in his receiving core. And you just think about the atmosphere in that building with the fans behind them, the Dome will be rocking, should be a ton of fun. Tickets on sale now at bclions.com and check this out. They start at just 30 bucks. And kids 17 and under can get in for 15. So bring the noise, fill the dome. Freakwide Vancouver is presented by Bodog. Make a play at Canvas Choice for free casino games, sports odds, and poker strategies. Great conversation there with uh, Scott Rintoul, and of course, uh, a really exciting time in Canucks hockey uh, back in the early to mid 2000s there. Uh, with the West Coast Express, uh, those years, I just moved to British Columbia during the uh, Mark Messier years, and I was kind of in my own bubble, living up in Whistler, young kid, you know, early 20s, so I loved hockey, but I wasn't as focused as, you know, you were. That era must have been so odd, that whole Mark Messier, Mike Keenan, and then, of course, into the West Coast Express. Yeah, well, as I said to Scotty, I mean, I, I moved down from Kamloops in the summer of 99, and was hired to host Canucks pregame on CKNW for the start of the 99-2000 season. So Messier, that was his final year. And it was, yeah, there was just so much dysfunction around that team. The Sedins had just emerged. That was their first year. And they took a lot of heat here, right? Like, I I remember people, you know, giving them that terrible nickname and whatnot. But, I mean, it took them a while. When you consider where they're at now and how, you know, loved they are by everybody, back then, like, there was a lot of people that were dragging them. Yeah, and it just, uh, it was a directionless team. And nobody really, I mean, Brian Burke had taken over. Mark Crawford was there. And so the building blocks ultimately were in place. But, um, yeah, if you haven't had a chance, uh, highly recommend it. As Scotty said, it's just, it's a, a nice change of pace from the, you know, the minutia that we deal in, and we love dealing in the minutia, and anytime there's any kind of news, but this is just easy listening, road trip, sitting on the beach, whatever. Uh, I listened to the first couple of episodes uh, on a flight. Like, it was great. Just help pass the time. Um, So if you haven't had a chance, check it out. I would think a lot of Canuck fans have already, but again, I I do think that there's a segment of the population, as we said, that uh, probably had it on the to-do list, and here we are now uh, into the off-season, so get after it. We should mention as well, if we're going back in time here, today is the 29th anniversary, if you call it an anniversary, but it was 29 years ago today that the Canucks lost Game 7 at Madison Square uh, against the Rangers in 1994, and of course uh, the first Vancouver hockey riot that uh, followed that, and we know how things have played out since. But uh, yeah, uh, I guess uh, an infamous day in Vancouver Canuck history, if you will. I wonder what the uh, better sort of story would be. That run up to 94, if you're going to do another one of these docu-series, the run up to 94 or the 2011 run up? I mean, both would be compelling stories. Don't get me wrong, and, but 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 different in their own parts. Something tells me that that, that idea is rattling oh, around sure. in Scotty's yeah, brain absolutely. as well. Yeah, absolutely, um, you know. And look, it's been a dozen years. Like a fair bit of time has passed, and and I think he probably would unearth some interesting stories that you know maybe hadn't ever come to light, or a lot of us had put aside uh, just because there has been a lot of uh, a lot of damage done to uh, the brand and to connect yep. fans uh, in the decades. Since West then. Coast Express, Unreal Sports. Check it out. And yeah, some good listening here as the offseason officially begins because last night, Game 5 of the Stanley Cup Final wrapped up 
the series with the Golden Knights uh, taking down the Panthers 9-3. I mean, the score is crazy. I don't know if really is an addictive of what the game was, but uh, just a few notes that I put down because I know you love goals from defensemen. We saw a couple of those yeah. <laughs> again from the Golden yeah, Knights. Uh, Mark Stone with a hat trick. Uh, Jonathan Marcheseau wins the Con Smythe. And listen, I-, I like to spike the football. All right, here you go. Yeah, it's, the stage is yours. I guess I can, but so can you though, because you predicted that the Golden Knights would win in five. So All we'll right. give you that. And then I predicted that Marcia so uh, would win the cons. I said he was my favorite to win the cons. We did this before the uh, the uh, Eastern and Western Conference Finals even started. So we we threw those out way back then. Uh, Jack Eichel was your pick, and of course, there's some that argue that he uh, should have been that pick. Uh, Ty on Twitter uh, gave me a shout out. Said uh, Wadden suggested a sprinkle bet on Marcheseau to win the Con Smythe in a rink wide episode. He said he got that bet at 31 to one <laughs> odds. Congratulations, Ty. Hopefully, you put down a bunch of money, more than a sprinkle there. Uh, but Jonathan Marcheseau uh, taking home the Con Smythe. Did, did you agree with that, J Pat? Uh, I know you picked Eichel, but did you do you think that Marcheseau yeah, was worth it? Absolutely. I I just thought there was such an incredible yeah. consistency to his game throughout the playoffs yeah. and then through the Stanley Cup final as well. Now, had it gone to Eichel or if, you know, voters have been swayed by a hat trick by Stoat, although something tells me the votes were in by the time he scored the empty netter, uh, even though there were six minutes to go and the goalie was pulled with, I mean, why not at that point? But, but I think the votes probably were cast after the second period. Um, so, like I would have been shocked if it had gone a bunch of different ways, which again comes back to this notion of, you know, the Golden Knights just aren't a one or two horse team. I mean, they've just got so many thoroughbreds and guys that just play hard, show up, compete. And, you know, William Carlson had an incredible playoff run. You know, a guy like Keegan Colasar, I thought, uh, you know, Nick Waugh. Like, it's just, it's hard to find a guy that didn't pull his weight on that team. And, you know, Petrangelo got suspended in the Edmonton series. Uh, Theodore missed a game early, I think, in the first round. Uh, but otherwise, Vegas had remarkable health. And you need that, right? Like, you need some good bounces. Florida, obviously, at the end with Kachuk. I mean, the long list of injuries that some of those guys were playing through. Um, it's crazy that the doctors allowed them to do it. But, you know, that's what we love about hockey players and anything to win. Um, but Vegas was relatively healthy, uh, at least you know, on the surface, didn't suffer any massive injuries. You know, they did during the season, but in playoff time, at crunch time, they had the available bodies uh, ready to go and, you know, they rose to the challenge. So good on them. And uh, I've said it before, but I want to see what a victory parade looks like in Sin City. And I guess we'll find out soon here. We will. Yes, absolutely. I think the best series of the playoffs has to be that Florida upset over Boston though, right? When you sort of look back at it all, I know there was a few game sevens, but that one to me, that was that was the one. I think when you look back at the uh, you know, totality of the of the playoffs. Well, remember, like the first round, it's always breathtaking, and then everybody yeah. was bitching. The second round was boring this year. People were oh, the second round. It's it was one game seven in the second round, and it's hard to live up. I mean, that first round is just it's such overload for a hockey fan or guys in our business. I mean. You know, on the West Coast, starting at four o'clock every afternoon, you get some games that go double overtime. You're going to midnight. Like, it's just nonstop and you love it. Like, you, you can't get enough. And then it always feels like a bit of a natural letdown into round two. Um, you know, and then I look at the the conference finals, you know, New Jersey and Carolina, not the most high profile teams, although the Devils team, they're building something there. Um, and, you know, Dallas is just a well-built team that, you know, had a decent run, but in the end, uh, weren't up to the level of uh, the Vegas Golden Knights. And, you know, the Stanley Cup final, five games. I mean, I was glad Florida got the one in there because I thought that might make it interesting, but it just kind of seemed to piss Vegas off. And was like, that's it. Enough messing around. Uh, here we go. So, uh, better team one. Yeah, I mean, look, five games was a guess at the outset, but I just kind of felt that they would take care of home ice, they would get their split, and then they'd come back home and win it again, and that's ultimately how it all played out. So, I don't know. Like, I know that it, people are upset about Vegas winning. I am not in that camp at all. Like, I just... I, no, not at all. I, I praise it. I think it's fantastic. 
And they did a masterclass with that expansion draft. And then not only that, like you have to look beyond that because it's so much like more that they've done, right? And And what if this is changing the landscape of the way hockey is operated? Like for too long, people have been too patient and draft and develop and all that kind of no, like they just said screw that. Like so I wonder, you know, what will the long lasting implications and ramifications be of an upstart team that did it their own way and ultimately got to the top of the heat and using your salary cap properly like not like <laughs> trying your best to not overpay guys right yeah and a little bit of luck with petrangelo as well right you don't really generally get those guys in free agency so but the, but the other part of that is like early they built a destination like yeah you know people want to go wasn't, there yeah yeah like the city itself and the franchise and the way that they operated and the atmosphere that they built. And uh, again, if people haven't been to a game, like put it on your yeah, list. I have like, I want to go. Uh, they didn't boo Gary though, eh? Well, They're new that, that didn't surprise yeah. me. If there was a franchise yeah. that wasn't yeah. going to boo Gary Bettman, uh, he got, it was short and sweet and to the point and, you know, hand the cup off. And I don't know. I, I, I watched that last night and, you know, I've been around this game. We're fortunate enough to do this for a living. And, like, I I so want it for the people of Vancouver. I do. But I'm a sucker for that moment of Batman handing the cup off to the captain and that first, like, lifting it up and then, you know, always passing it off and to see guys that, you know, lesser lights and guys that were black aces and Ben Hunt. And, I mean, it's a Canuck podcast here. I don't know. There... I, I, there was a lot of back and forth on Twitter last night. I thought the rule was you had to play 41 regular season games or at least one game in the final to get your name on the cup. Uh, a lot of people have suggested that that has changed and that Vegas gets to submit, I think it's 52 names, but that includes coaches, owners, uh, trainers, if they want. Like It's at their discretion, and so not every guy who suits up is going to get his name on the cup. So I don't know if Ben Hutton ultimately, he'll get a ring. He was part of the championship. He played, he played in the playoffs. He played two playoff games. So you can't say that he wasn't part of the team and he was out there celebrating last night. Um, you know, and, and George McPhee, obviously a former Canuck front office guy who, you know, I saw somewhere he was saying that uh, it was just too bad that Pat Quinn wasn't around to to see him have his day uh, with the Stanley Cup like this one. So uh yeah, I mean, there were some good stories, but I, I am just a sucker. Like, I watch right through that and all the interviews and, you know, all the people that, uh, all the families out there on the ice at the end as well. Yeah, me too. I watch uh, it all as well. Yeah, that's uh, what they play for. That's what they play for, ultimately. Ben Hutton's got one more year left on his contract as well, and he's and he's getting one-way money with the Vegas Golden Knights. So, uh, congratulations, yeah, to Ben Hutton, and of course, uh, George McPhee as well, and just going back to their goaltending too, like Logan Thompson is still signed. He's got two more years yeah. at, you know, basically league minimum. Like go, go back to my Bodog uh, Stanley Cup odds there, like at plus 1100, that's very good value for the Vegas Golden Knights to repeat. So uh, head over to Bodog and place your bet. Um, before we get to my best bet uh, heading into uh, the U.S. Open, because I'm going to look at some golf. You know, we love golf here on, on Rinkwide Vancouver. Um, I'm going to ask you this, Phil Kessel. Hall of Famer? Uh, yeah, three-time Stanley Cup champ, as he was quick to remind people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, he, he loves just giving it to the Doesn't Toronto miss an opportunity. <laughs> uh, I know, and, and people are saying, like, this is a thing now, Nathan Kadri last year, and now it's Phil Kessel. I don't know. The Hockey Hall of Fame is so hard to figure out. Uh, we're going to find out next year's class here uh, sometime in the next week, and, you know, there's a movement again. The fact that Alex McGillney isn't in and we went through that because there were so many Canucks involved last year um you know so how McGillney has been out and hasn't had the call so Kessel yeah that's tough I mean three Stanley Cups one of the highest scoring Americans of all time the he's longevity. almost a thousand points he's eight yeah. points you know like he's yeah he's the Iron Man very good chance he's going to play again next year he had a decent year for the Golden Knights, he had 36 points in 82 games. He had 14 goals. He was half a point a game in the playoffs. This problem is he only played four games in the playoffs. But yeah, the Iron Man to me, Phil gets in there. But uh, I don't know if it's a Hall of Fame in in when it comes to hockey. It's kind of a Hall of Good when it comes to uh, some of the guys that are in there. All right, so let's get to my Bodog best bet. We love golf. U.S. Open is going to be starting tomorrow. I am going to go with two guys because I want to pick a Canadian as well. All right, J. Pat. I like Brooks Kepka at plus 1100. Uh, I think he's going to be firing on all cylinders. He loves uh, to win majors. 
And I got Corey Connors. I know people are saying, what are you doing? You should have Nick Taylor. I love Nick Taylor. Again, he's going to be coming off a pretty high week, whether he can keep his focus going into the U.S. Open. He's at plus 20,000 right now. I got Corey Connors at plus 8,000. Those are my picks for the U.S. Open. Yeah, I mean, hard to go against Brooks Kepka coming off his PGA Championship, five majors that he has, just the way that he plays and the way that he bullies these golf courses and in some ways bullies his opponents um, to be the last man standing. Uh, Los Angeles Country Club looks spectacular. I've been watching a fair bit on the Golf Channel here. It's kind of unlike anything in the fact that it's never hosted a modern major. They're all in the starting blocks together without a lot of experience. So uh, I've heard some people liking it to... Uh, Australian golf courses, and I wonder if that plays into a guy like Cam Smith and, uh, you know, one of the great putters in the game, obviously on live, so we haven't seen a lot of him. He's been down um, a little bit lately, lately, though, you know? Yeah. I do love his game, though. You're right. You're right. So uh, there's some cool holes out there. <laughs> the par threes, the two par threes that are 280 yards Um I'm just, I'm fascinated to see how guys play them. 280 yards. There's one that can play 298 yards. Part part five for Dollywall. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Scotty Scheffler's the number one guy, number one in the world. John Rahm won the U.S. Open a couple years ago in California at Torrey Pines. I'm wondering where Rahm's game's at. I know he's had a great year. He's probably, I think he's put 15 sheets in his pocket already this year, but... I'm just wondering where he's at right now. Scheffler is the uh, odds on favorite right now, plus 650. But uh, John Rahm at plus 1,100, so he's right there with Brooks Kapka as the second highest, uh, lowest odds, that is. Yeah, I mean, there are so many, obviously. I mean, in any major, there's a ton of contenders, but it just feels right now like there are a lot of thoroughbreds that are ready to go here and uh, turn them loose uh, starting on Thursday morning. Let's see where it goes. And Corey Connors, disappointing finish last week, but I'm with you that Nick Taylor, uh, you know, back-to-back National Open, so it'd be an incredible story. Uh, I kind of I thought the Golf Channel might lean into that a little bit and give Nick uh, some love, um, but they're so focused on the, the and I know that it's the top end guys that sell, so uh, they spent more time talking about the golf course and sort of the the contenders. But I I don't know I thought that there was enough of an angle there with the putt and the celebration and back to back National Opens that maybe Nick Taylor's story would get a little more love from the Golf Channel. But it would be great if like let's hope his form carries over. I just wonder how rested, how much preparation he's truly been able to do. And Corey Connors, I mean, we've seen him compete at majors. In fact, at the PGA, you know, just hits it so pure. Um, and had a disappointing finish at the PGA. Had a little bit of a disappointing finish last week at the Canadian Open. Uh, maybe the third time is the charm here in recent run. Like, he's playing well. Uh, can he put it together for for four rounds? So, going to be watching a fair bit. Yeah, Corey Connors. The lowest odds for amongst the Canadians at plus 8,000. As mentioned, Nick Taylor, plus 20,000. And Adam Hadwin at plus 30,000. All right. This has been another edition of the Rinkwide Vancouver podcast presented by Bodog. Many thanks to Scott Rintoul for joining us. For Jeff Patterson, I'm Andrew Wadden. Remember, Rinkwide is the show. Sports.